Good morning, church. It's been a real joy to worship our God together with you this morning. Glad each and every one of you are here. Some of you here maybe for the very first time. So glad you're with us. Not the first time my parents are here, but my parents. Um, uh, this is day two of being Manitoba residents again for my mom and dad. They've uh, making the move to Brandon. Where are uh, well, anyway, for six months, and then we're kicking them out. But uh, anyway, <laughs> I heard a clap there. Anyway, good to have my, my folks here. My dad, uh, tomorrow begins at First Baptist Church in Brandon, interim pastor there. So we're just happy to have them around with our grandkids, see a lot of them over these coming months. Uh, went to the, the Stamps Bombers game on Friday. How about them? How about them Bombers? All right. Anyway, let's start talking about Jesus, shall we? Maybe let's get there. Uh, we're continuing a series we began last week on the miracles of Jesus, God's power to change uh, our lives. Now, you like magic tricks? Anyone here that you like magic tricks? I like magic tricks. I was never good at it. I'm not good with my hands. You know that. That's why I became a pastor. And, uh, but uh, everyone likes magic tricks. When I was a kid, the, 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 the big famous ma- magician you would see on TV was David Copperfield. You remember David Copperfield? I think I had a picture of him here being cut in half. That's, uh, that's one of his tricks. And uh, that's back when, when mullets were cool. Hey? Uh, Quentin, uh, those days will come back, buddy. Just hang in there. Those days will come back. But uh, I remember um, uh, David Copperfield making the Statue of Liberty disappear. It was incredible. Uh, crowds watched it. Millions more on TV had watched him make the Statue of Liberty disappear. And, and we wondered to ourselves, how in the world did he do that? He got cut in half by a saw, and then he got put back together. How did he do that? Thanks to YouTube, you can find out. It was, uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went on YouTube and, and discovered how he did this. So afterwards, not now, but after the service, you can go on YouTube and kind of figure out how he did this trick. But we see these tricks, and we're amazed by them, and we kind of wonder how, how, how they pulled that off. You know, we haven't called this series the magic tricks of Jesus. We're calling it the miracles of Jesus. Because there's a difference between magic tricks and miracles. There's a few differences. Magic tricks, well, they might be amazing, but they're illusions. They're not real, okay? They're sleight of hands. The miracles of Jesus, okay, was was no sleight of hand. It was the power of God's hand to do the impossible. Turn to your neighbor and say, my God can do the impossible. All right. Last week, when we began this series, uh, we, we, we talked a bit about miracles and how well, all these uh, great stories of God, Jesus doing the miraculous in the Gospels, about 37 different occasions detailed, okay, were, were, were real miracles. They were not illusions. It was God doing impossible things. You know, God can do the impossible. God does the impossible. We were reminded that God intervenes with his powerful hand in our lives and in our world today. And that's awesome. That's awesome. God is a powerful God who works the impossible. So magic tricks are an illusion, but, but, but Jesus' miracles are no illusion. They are God's power to change our lives by doing the impossible. Magic tricks are for show. 
They amaze us. We wonder how the magician did them, but, but G- Jesus' miracles have significance. They were not done for a show. They have, each and every one of them has significance. Now, you think of the word significance, what's the root word? S-I-G-N. What does that spell? I'll give you a few seconds. Some of you need a few seconds. S-I-G-N. Sign. Okay, that's the root word of significance. Last week, we talked about how the, the, the number one word used to describe Jesus' miracles in the Gospels is the word sign. Jesus' miracles are signs, and we know what a sign is. A sign isn't about itself. It signifies something. It points you to something that is the real thing, that is the greater thing. So every one of Jesus' miracles, as we look at them, are signs that God gives us, not to amaze us, but to point us to something that truly is the amazing thing to the real thing. And so as we go through these miracles, we're going to take a look at what they point us to. They're not about what God does. They're about what God is saying to us, even today. Each one of the miracles of Jesus, as we look at them, shows us, that, uh, shows us what God and his kingdom are like. And in the coming of Jesus and his miracles, it's a way of saying, with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God has come as well. And so this morning we're going to look at a miracle, one of my favorites, a miracle that many of you are going to know well. It's one of those Sunday school classics, would make a great movie. We find it in the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. We also find it in Matthew and Mark, but we're going to look at, uh, at how Luke describes this. Luke chapter 5, if you have your Bible, you're welcome to turn there. We're going to start at verse 17. This story really has four characters, four main characters. We have Jesus, We have a paralyzed man, we have the paralyzed man's friends, and then we have a group of religious leaders and teachers, back in the day they were called the Pharisees. These four groups of people we see in the story, and at the end of the message we're going to come back to those characters, and I'm going to ask you the question, where are you in the story? Because this is what I know this morning, every single one of you is in this story somewhere. That's your job this morning, to ask God, where am I in this story? Uh, we're going to come back to that. So uh, let, let me just pray and ask for God to kind of just uh, reveal that to us, to speak to us this morning. Lord God, we thank you for your word. It has the power to change our lives for the better. And Lord, we want the life that you want for us. And so we open ourselves up to you now, Father, and just ask that uh, through your word that you would speak your truth into our lives and change us. Show us, Father, where we are uh, in this story. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to set the scene before we get to this story. Uh, y- you maybe know that the Gospel of Luke starts with Jesus' birth. It starts with the Christmas story, you know, shepherds and angels and all that stuff. That's chapter 1 and 2. Chapter 3, Jesus is now a grown man. He's 30 years old. Uh, he, he, he begins his ministry, his coming out party, when he's baptized by John the Baptist. Chapter 4, then, we, we see the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's interesting what his first words are as recorded by Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 4. We're told that Jesus, uh, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been attracting attention. Verse 
Verse 16, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Jesus stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling that scroll, Jesus found the place. He sought it out. He found the place in, in the book of Isaiah where it is written. Now, okay, these are the first words that we have of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke in his ministry, where he quotes uh, the words of God um, in Isaiah. Jesus read, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Now remember, this is what it says in Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Does that sound good? Wow. So he reads that. Now, they all knew that passage. They all knew the promise of God. They were all waiting for it to be fulfilled, for the day when God would send this one on whom his spirit would rest to do this. Okay, so he reads that. He rolls up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. You'd hear a pin drop in there. It says the eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on Jesus. What was he going to do next? He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am the one, the promised one that God would would send, okay, to set free the captives, to set free the oppressed. Wow. Those are his first words. Now, as you go on through chapter 4 into chapter 5, you see him continuing to go about. He's preaching, talking about the kingdom of God. He's healing. In uh, verse 15 of chapter 5, it says, News about him is spreading all the more. And so crowds of people are coming to hear him. And the, and, and the sick are, being co- are coming to, to be healed by him. And, and this is where our story picks up. Chapter 5, verse 17. Uh, it says, One day Jesus was teaching... And Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and they lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Okay, perfect movie scene here, right? Um, Just picture this, okay? Jesus is in town. Word is spreading. There's this paralyzed man. He lives on a mat. He's lived on a mat for a long time. We don't know. Is it just his legs that don't work? Is Is he a quadriplegic? Did he fall off a ladder? He doesn't work from the... Does he have cerebral palsy? Is he able to speak? We're not really sure. But this is a man who's paralyzed. He lives on a mat. He's got some good friends who when they hear Jesus is coming, they think we're going to take our friend to Jesus in the hope that maybe he'll do what he's done to others. Maybe he'll heal this man, our friend. And so they take him and they bring him to that place where Jesus is speaking in this house. And when they get there, I guess they, got, they should have got there a little earlier because the place is just packed out. I mean, the living room is packed. The hallways, out the front door, there's a crowd around the front door all trying to hear the word of Jesus. And they just cannot get in. Because, I mean, this is a world that doesn't accommodate handicapped people. It's not like today, right? Where there's that little parking spot and there's that little section, right, for people like this. No, 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 no. 
This world doesn't accommodate people like that. There is no way they can get this man in to see Jesus. But they will not be deterred. They find a way under the roof. I don't know how they got under the roof. You can just imagine them hauling this guy under the roof. Maybe there was a ladder. Back in the day, they had flat roofs because they would, they would store things up on the roofs. Um, sometimes their crops up there and their roofs were usually made of kind of mud and straw. Somehow they got this man up onto the roof and when they got up there, what did they do? They started digging a hole in the roof. Now you can just kind of imagine what it would have been like to be in that room. Jesus is talking. There's this ruckus up above and all of a sudden some dirt starts falling, you know, in, in their face. And all of a sudden there's sunlight and, and, then, and then that opening grows, and all of a sudden, this man is lowered in a sling or something by, by, by a rope by these guys right down into the middle of the room before Jesus. Would you like friends like this? I mean, I'd like friends like this, okay? Uh, these guys will not be deterred from, from, from bringing their friend uh, to Jesus. I mean, so let me ask you the question. What do you want so badly that you would dig a hole in the roof to bring it before Jesus? Like what need do you have or might you have that would cause you to go to those lengths to get in front of Jesus in the hopes that he might meet that need? Think about that. For these guys, I, I think it's pretty clear what they were looking for. Th this paralyzed man, he wanted to walk again. That was their hope. And so anyway, he comes down before Jesus, and then everyone's watching to see what Jesus is going to do. And he doesn't do what people think he's going to do. Right? He doesn't say what people think he's going to say. The next verse tells us, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. How would you respond to that? Um, that's interesting, Jesus. Good news. But I, I, I came here to walk. I really need my body to be healed. Jesus says, no, you don't. The man might have thought, my, my, my primary need, my, my, life could, my life could just all be better. Everything might just be right if I could be healed, if I could walk. And Jesus says, no, that's not true. What Jesus is saying, and it doesn't, you don't have to be a brain surgeon to figure, you could probably come up here and preach this sermon. And you'd probably do it shorter. Maybe even a little better. I mean, th th this is the first thing that we gotta see in this story. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, friend, friend your greatest need is not to walk. Your greatest need is to be healed in your spirit by forgiveness. Your greatest need is to have a right relationship with God. That's your number one need. That's our number one need. Our greatest need is the healing of forgiveness. Jesus, he looked down this, this man and he saw a man with a crippled body, but, but even more so, he saw a man with a crippled spirit. Weighed down, imprisoned. What would that look like in this man's life? We don't know, but that's what Jesus saw. I mean, if you go back to Luke chapter 4, those words from the book of Isaiah that Jesus read, that he said he was the fulfillment of, that talked about proclaiming 
God's favor on people, setting the oppressed free, I mean, we begin to realize that doesn't mean what the people thought it meant. They thought, well, maybe he was going to come and he was going to kind of restore the kingdom and get rid of the Roman oppressors and, and all was going to be well in the land again. But Jesus is saying, there's a greater oppression I've come to free you from. There's a greater healing that I've come to work in your life. And that's the healing of your relationship with God, which cascades into a healing of your relationship with yourself, a healing of your relationship with those around you, the healing that forgiveness brings. In other words, Jesus is saying, your greatest oppression is the oppression of sin, and all that sin works in your life. What he's saying is, 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 is the real prison you're trapped in isn't the prison of, of a body that won't work. It's, it's the prison of guilt and shame. Now, some of you, you hear that and you go, yeah, I believe that. I, I, I agree that. I've, I, I affirm that. Maybe I even have felt that in my own life. And I think there's maybe other people in this room probably and certainly outside of this room in our community, they would go, I don't know. I, I don't feel that I'm necessarily oppressed by sin, that I'm in a prison of guilt and shame? I, I, I don't know if that's true. How do we think about that? You know, there was a book by one of the most prolific authors of the last century, Franz Kafka. Anyone heard of Franz Kafka? He had a book called The Trial. And a, a little book, famous book. It's a story about a man named Joseph K. He's a normal guy. He works at a bank, but all of a sudden, one day, he's arrested and he's put, he's put under house arrest. But he won't be, he, he, he's never told why he was arrested. And he's looking for answers. The whole book is him looking for answers. And he tries to find from the authorities, why have I been put under arrest? Why am I imprisoned? And he kind of gets the runaround. No one is going to answer his question. No one tells him. And year after year after year, here he is in this state of imprisonment, but he doesn't know why he's there. And so as the book goes, he kind of imagines, he thinks back into over the course of his life, and, he's, and he starts to wonder, well, maybe that's why I'm here. Maybe, maybe this is the result of that thing I did, or, or maybe it was because of that over there. That's why I'm, I'm imprisoned. And he never gets answers. And the book ends with him one night being taken out by a couple of guards and stabbed to death. The, the end. Um, Disney's going to make it into a movie, apparently. It's... But, but the author, uh, in, in his... We, f- we find the whole book is an allegory. Okay? In his diary, he, he, he talks about this book and what it means. And this is what, this is what Franz Kafka said about the book. He says, it describes the state in which we find ourselves today. The state of being sinful, independent of guilt. Sinful, independent of guilt. By which I think he meant we live in an age that says you don't have any reason to feel guilty. Nobody can tell you what's right or wrong. You decide for yourself what's, what's, what's right, what's wrong. Um, we, we, we're trying to dispense with guilt altogether. There's no reason to be guilty. Why do you feel guilty? And the world tries to give us every reason why we ought not to feel these things. And yet, at the end of the day, we all still feel them. Like this man, Joseph, looking for answers. Why am I here? Without finding the answers. I think 
maybe if you talked with those around you, out, your, your coworkers and your neighbors, they might not say, I'm, yeah, I'm, I guess you're right, I'm imprisoned by sin or guilt or shame or whatever. But yet I wonder if, if you look at your lives and if they looked at their lives, if, if there wouldn't be just kind of a, a troubled, disquieted spirit within us. Like, there's something wrong with us, but we can't quite put our finger on it. We don't know why, we can't explain it, but it is. We feel it. We have this nagging feeling like we are not what we ought to be. We are not what we could be. That, that at the end of the day, we're failures. We're fakes, maybe. Like, we don't measure up. We're not good enough. We're unworthy. We have this sense of, of condemnation, I think, even if we don't call it sin or guilt or shame or whatever. People have this sense of condemnation and they cannot talk themselves out of it. They cannot shake it. We live in a world of people that are oppressed, imprisoned in their spirit, crippled in their spirit, with these nagging thoughts and questions. David, King David, Shepherd David, back in the Psalm 32, he kind of speaks about this in his own life. The words begin up here. Um, first few verses of Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 32. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is in no deceit. Now we use that word blessed a lot. Bless you. Be blessed. Blessings. What do we mean by that? I think often it's just kind of this nebulous churchy word. Okay? You know what it means? Happy. Happy. Joyful. Free in your spirit. David said, blessed, happy is the one whose sins have been forgiven. The one uh, whose sin the Lord does not, has not counted against them. Then he talks about an, uh, his own experience. He says, when I, he, looking back in his life, he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And here he's talking about this state that Kafka was talking about, which, which I think people, if you really get to know them, all experience this oppressed state of feeling like things are not as they ought to be, that they're failures, that they are not good enough. They don't meet some sort of measure. And David describes it with just kind of this constant groaning Day by day, this heaviness that sapped his strength. This is what he experienced. This oppression that he said kind of just flowed from his sinfulness. He says, then I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So he cried out to God for mercy. He repented of his, his sin. And he experienced the forgiveness of God. 
He was released from, not just the sin, but he was released from the guilt that came with it, the weight of that guilt. Coming back to our, our story, it, it's kind of perplexing here, and maybe you've read the story and you've, you've wondered, okay, David, he, uh, he, he acknowledged his sin, he says. But th- this man here in this story, Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven, but he... There's nothing that suggests in there, seemingly, that he actually asked for that. That he wanted that. That he repented of his sin. That he asked for forgiveness or mercy. So what do we, what do, we do with that? It's, it's a little perplexing because there's no place in the Bible, you read it from cover to cover, there is no place in the Bible where God forgives people who don't repent. Who don't acknowledge their need of forgiveness who don't ask God for mercy. You will not find it there. There's no indication anywhere that you get forgiveness apart from repentance. Even in our own story here, a few verses later in Luke chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus uh, says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's talked about coming and setting the oppressed free. He forgives this man. He says, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so you see this association between repentance and the forgiveness of God. So what's going on here? This man doesn't ask, and yet Jesus gives. The clue might be in the very next verse as we continue. Verse 21, after he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. We know that there were some Pharisees there. It says the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they did not like this Jesus. They began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus knew what they were thinking. Jesus, Jesus knows what's in your mind and in your heart. Did your mommy or daddy ever tell you that? <laughs> Jesus knows. Jesus was able to peer into the hearts of, of the prophecies, and he knew exactly what they were thinking. And I think it's true, too, with this man. He saw this crippled man. And again, who knows if he could even speak. His mouth might have been misformed, and, and maybe he got some sounds out. But what did you say, son? Say, say it again. Jesus was able to look into his heart. And when Jesus looked into the man's heart, you know what he found? He found as as partial and incomplete and imperfect and inarticulate as it might have been, he saw into the man's heart and saw a cry for mercy. For the mercy of God. Jesus saw it in the man. And he responded by saying, son, your sins are forgiven. I love this about Jesus. This, 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 is, this is our Jesus, okay? Jesus is one who longs to forgive. He longs to free, okay? He wants to, see, he wants to heal our relationship with God. He wants to heal our spirit, Kind of, I listen to the radio when I'm in the car, normally to CJOB, and um, 
often they have these radio contests, right? If you call in, third caller, we'll ask you a still skill testing question. If you get it right, you win. And normally it's a pretty easy question, right? But sometimes you get, you get some person on there, they just don't have a clue, right? And, and so the, the, the radio host kind of senses that the person doesn't really know, and so what do they do? Going to drop a hint, trying to give it away. And, and sometimes they're, st- they're really stupid people, and they're still not catching on. And, and the radio host is doing everything he can to try to bring the person to the answer, right? They almost never get it wrong, do they? Even when they get it wrong, the guy's like, I think you meant B instead of A. We'll give it to you anyway, right? Because <laughs> they, they, they want to give it away. So this is what we see here with Jesus. Jesus really wants to give away healing in our spirits. He wants to give away f- forgiveness. He wants to set people free. He wants to pour out God's favor. He doesn't have to. Jesus doesn't have to forgive. Nobody has, has to forgive. If, you know, if any preacher told you that or any, your, your mom or dad told you you had to forgive, they're wrong. You don't have to forgive. You, you've probably heard, if you've had kids in your house, what, what I've heard more than a handful of times, something like Britta coming to Pippa, let's say. Not say it's, it'll be the other way around, okay. It'll be Pippa. Pippa will have done something and she'll have hurt Britta, let's say. And Britta has cried. Britta's upset. And Pippa will come and say, Britta, I'm sorry for what I did. Now you say I forgive you. <laughs> right? No, I don't want to. Britta, I said I'm sorry. Now you say I forgive you. <laughs> have you ever heard that with kids in your house? It's like, it doesn't work that way. I mean, forgiveness in its very nature is an act of grace, okay? It is not, and it cannot be earned. It cannot be deserved. It cannot be demanded. It can only be freely given. God doesn't have to forgive. But what we find in the story is is God longs to forgive us, to heal our relationship with him, to heal our spirits. Forgiveness is totally an act of grace, and Jesus is aggressive with his grace. He's aggressive with it. He makes his own opportunities to give it away. Right after this story, we find that he's walking through the town, through uh, down Main Street, and there's, uh, there's the tables with the tax collectors. Everybody hates the tax collectors. They're filthy animals. Jesus walks by and he looks at one of the tax collectors. You know him by Matthew, okay? And he says, hey, Matthew, come follow me. You're, you're going to belong to me now. And everyone looked at him and said, Matthew, the tax collector, now he's keeping company with sinners, drunkards, tax collectors. Jesus is aggressive in giving his grace. That bothered the Pharisees. They weren't grace people. 
they asked Jesus, uh, or, they, or they said within their own hearts, who can forgive sins but God alone? And it's a good question. I mean, you can only forgive sins that are committed against you, right? If Pastor John and Pastor Andrew and I walked into a bar, could happen someday. I mean, who knows? Start over. Pastor Andrew, Pastor John, and I walk into the sanctuary, and I don't know, maybe there's a bit of a tiff, never happens, but Pastor John punches Rusty in the face. You've played this out a few times, haven't you, John? I know, I know you have. It's, sad. I, it's satisfying, isn't it? Just Got a bloody nose. Imagine if Andrew came over to John and said, John, that's okay. I forgive you. It's all good. Right? I'd say, um, thanks, Andrew, but he didn't punch you in the face. He punched me in the face. You can't forgive. Only I can forgive him. Right? You can only forgive, forgive sins committed against you. And, and they knew that. And so here's Jesus forgiving not just a man's sin. Like they had probably never met before. This man had never wronged Jesus in the way we would, 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 might normally think. And yet Jesus says, I forgive all of your sins. They knew exactly what he was saying. Jesus was saying, I have the ability to forgive all your sins because I am the creator and the sustainer of the universe against whom all sins are ultimately committed. I am that one. And of course, they said, well, that's blasphemous. How can you possibly say that? Jesus responds to them in verse 23. He says, well, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. Which is easier to say? It's kind of been of a dilemma. What? It's probably easier to say you're forgiven than to say get up and walk because you can say get up and walk to a paralytic but there's a good chance you're not going to get up and walk and you're going to be outed as a fraud. It's pretty easy to say your sins are forgiven. Rusty can come up to you and say your sins are forgiven. Are they? Jesus says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? But, and he continues, but I want you to know that the Son of Man, that's a title referring to himself from the Old Testament, this prophesied Son of Man. He says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, uh, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. So here's the sign. Jesus says, to show you that I have the, uh, the, the authority, the power, and the willingness to forgive sins and set you free, to heal your relationship with God, I'm going to perform a sign, a miracle. And so he heals the man's body. He makes him walk. And again, what does it signify? Well, Jesus says, that miracle signifies that I have the power and the willingness, the desire to forgive sins, to set people oppressed in their spirits free. But we have to ask ourselves the question, it might be easier to say your, your sins are forgiven than to say get up and walk, but which is easier to do? I think it's a lot easier for Jesus to heal a man's leg than to forgive 
his sins. In fact, I think this is true. Nothing is hard for God. God only had one problem. Only one problem. And that was to forgive sins. To forgive your sins and my sins. That was God's only problem. Dilemma. You see, because... God's word is his action. You see this throughout the Bible. God's word is his action. This is where you and I uh, differ from God, right? Rusty can say, I'm going to clean the garage. Erica, is, is my word my action? She doesn't know how to answer. She's like, I don't know what you want from me. Stop talking about me and your sermons. Let's just say, I've got a, I've got a very messy garage. Okay? I've said a bunch of times, I'm going to clean my garage. It's not clean. Because my word is not my action. God's different. He says, let there be light. And what happens? See, God doesn't say, I'm going to do this. And then he has to go and actually do it. The saying he's going to do it is the same as the doing of it. His word is his action. So for him to say to the man, get up. Walk. That's, he doesn't have to say it and then do it. His word is his action. So anything is easy for God, except we have a problem here with the forgiving of sins. You see, Jesus couldn't just say your sins are forgiven and they're forgiven. It's the only thing he couldn't do just by saying it. You see, God is a God that is perfectly holy, perfectly just. The God who says, I will not let the guilty go unpunished. And yet he's the same God that is a gracious God. He's just, meeting out justice perfectly, and yet gracious, merciful. Well, how can you be both? In a few minutes, we're going to take this bread and this cup together, which signifies, represents Jesus' sacrifice of himself on the cross. You see, the cross was the only way for God to be just and merciful perfectly. He couldn't just say your sins are forgiven unless he then went to the cross. Uh, This is... I don't know to what degree that makes sense to you, but this is what Paul is talking about here. He says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So he's talking about Jesus' death on the cross. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in God's forbearance, he had left the sins before, committed beforehand, all human history prior, unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be two things, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who believe in Jesus. What he's saying is that for Jesus to be just and the one who is able to justify us, to make us right, to forgive us of our sins, the only way to do that isn't by Jesus saying you're forgiven, it's by Jesus saying you're forgiven and then taking another step, 
an action step, which God had never had to do before, of going to the cross. And on the cross, all of your and my and the sin of the world, the penalty of that sin, all the weight of that guilt, that shame, the grief, the stain, everything that comes, the brokenness that comes with our sin and what that wreaks in our lives in the world, all of that is poured on Jesus on the cross by God's grace. He absorbs it all for us so that nothing goes unpunished, so that justice prevails, and yet, and yet, he can be merciful. He can forgive. The cross was the only way. If Jesus hadn't died on that cross, when he said to that man, your sins are forgiven, wouldn't have worked. But he knew he was on his way to the cross to die for that man, to die for you and I. So that he could say to us, your sins are forgiven. That man was doubly healed, that paralytic. He was healed in his body, but more importantly, he was healed in his spirit. And I wonder, I wonder what he did with that mat. He rolled that up and he put that mat on his shoulder and he went home praising God. He went back to his family. What do you think he did with the mat? I don't think he ever laid on it again. That mat that he had to spend his whole life on. Hated that thing. I don't know, he went home and he framed it, put it on the wall as a reminder of the healing that God had done in his life. Or maybe he called the wife and the kids and the neighbors around and, and, and they had a ceremonial burning of the mat. But that mat that he rolls up and never lies on again, that mat in the story just doesn't represent his paralysis, his sickness. That, that, that mat represents all of the guilt and the shame of his sin, all the feelings of not measuring up. All the feelings of not being good enough. All the questions of where do I stand with God. That nagging sense of I'm just, I'll never measure up. That's what that mat represents. And he rolls that up and he throws that mat on his shoulder and he takes it home and he probably burns it to see it no more. That day Jesus healed his body, but more importantly, he healed his spirit through forgiveness to bring him into right relationship with God. The greatest miracle is the miracle of salvation. That's what we're supposed to see in this story. And there's all sorts of miracles that God can do and God does, but there's one that's greatest. The greatest miracle is the miracle of salvation. It's the miracle of forgiveness that brings healing to our spirits, that brings freedom to our lives, that brings us into right relationship with God. Now that's true for you and that's true for every other person around you and every person you will meet, the greatest miracle that they need and that God wants to do is the miracle of salvation. And the cool thing is you and I, we can be a part of that miracle. We can receive the miracle, but we can be a part of others receiving it too. We haven't really talked about the friends yet in the story <clears throat> But if you go back to, to verse 20, who does Jesus, um, whose faith does he respond to when he says, friend, your sins are forgiven? Well, we're told he, he doesn't say he saw the man's 
faith and he said, your sins are forgiven. He says, he saw their faith. Whose faith did he see? Whose faith did he see? Their faith. The faith of the friends. The man and all the guys around the man that got him from point A to point B where he needed to be to be healed. The only place he could be healed. They all played this really important role in the miracle of this man's healing. It wouldn't have happened without him. And they would not be deterred from bringing their friend to Jesus. Now you can't meet people's deepest need. Anyone around you, you can't meet their deepest need. But you can bring them to the one who can meet their deepest need. That's our job. You can bring them to the one. You do whatever you have to do. You dig a hole in the roof if you have to. You can bring them to the one, the only one who can meet their deepest need, who can work that deepest healing, the one who can make them new. So as we kind of bring this to a close here, we come back to that that first question. Where are you in the story? Where are you in the story? Maybe you're, maybe you're the friend in this story. Maybe your legs have been healed. You've been made to walk spiritually. And now your job is to, your job is to bring your paralyzed friend and to do whatever, whatever it takes to bring him before Jesus. Maybe you're the Pharisees in this story. We haven't talked much about the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they were no less in need of mercy than the paralyzed man. They might have been able-bodied, but they were not able-spirited. They were just as sinful and just as in need of the mercy of God. They just, for, they, ref, they refused to accept that or seek mercy for whatever reason. They tried to hide those weights. They tried to just carry them themselves, to bury them, to manage them, to overcome them by their own efforts, by their own good works. They wouldn't acknowledge their need for mercy, and so they were never forgiven. They were never healed. They left crippled in their spirit. So maybe some, maybe you've, you've been a bit of a Pharisee. I can do this on my own. Maybe this morning you're the paralytic. I bet we got some paralytics in this room. We've got lots of paralytics around us outside of this room. Maybe you're one who feels that great weight that I described earlier, that sort of oppression of just not knowing where you stand, not knowing if you measure up, not feeling like you measure up, not feeling like you're ever good enough, that you are not what you ought to be or could be, that you just fall short and you deal with that grief, that paralysis in your spirit. Maybe, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're crippled in your spirit. Maybe you're sick on the inside. What you need to hear this morning, what, what, what I hope you've heard clearly is that Jesus wants to heal your spirit. Jesus wants to forgive you and bring you into a right relationship of God where you are set free from all of that bondage and baggage. He died on the cross for you because he wanted to forgive you. He wanted to make you new. So Jesus... He doesn't, he doesn't come to you today and say, I've got good news, I've got a 10-step plan for you. Jesus comes to us today like he did to the man 
so many years ago, and he says, I'll heal you today. I'll forgive you today if you just ask. Just say the word. I want to. I'm willing. I want to set you free from all that weight, all that baggage, all that guilt, all that shame. You don't have to carry that anymore. You don't have to strive. You don't have to wonder. You can be set free. You can be healed in your spirit. I want to do that work in you. I can do that work in you. Just ask. Just ask. That's all he, that's all he asks. That we ask. He is willing to forgive.